So, we've been talking about revealing Jesus. And I think about it when we have been talking about revealing Jesus, how easy it can become for those words to become our new slogan or our new brand or our new in words. The reality is, is revealing Jesus isn't about a slogan. It's not about a cool phrase. It's about action. It's the preface to what we're going to do. It's the preface to what we are doing. It's the preface to what God is going to unleash through us in our obedience. That's what Reveal Jesus is about. So we've been talking over the past couple weeks about what that means. And we've declared publicly that our target as a community is to reveal Jesus. Some people say, well, how long are we going to do that for? (laughs) Exactly, forever. (laughs) It's what we're supposed to do. So get away from the mindset that it's this thing for 2011 of what Erie First is going to do. This is the lifestyle. It's the hallmark of every follower of Jesus. Whoever claims to say that I'm a follower of Christ, that means that you have confessed with your mouth and you have believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, that he is the only way to heaven, that you have repented because you've missed the mark and you can't do it in your own strength. And you can just simply say, I mess up. And you choose to follow the values of Jesus from this point forward. That is a follower of Jesus. And the hallmark of us as followers of Christ is simply to reveal him. And so we've been breaking that down. We've been getting a little more focused, if you want to say, on what it really means to reveal Jesus. And so we started with Act 1. And in Act 1, we began to break down, first of all, what it means to love Jesus. Because if we want to reveal Christ, we have to know what it means to love him. And so we first talked about the goal of God and what his goal really is, that he's not some big spiritual force set up in heaven that is untouchable, that really wants to rain down on us with lightning bolts. But we talked about what his goal is, and simply that his goal is love. To love us who follow him, to love those who don't even know him, to those who haven't even heard of the name Jesus. And we talked about the supremacy of Christ, that he is it, that it begins with him and it ends with him, and that we can't add anything else to it. That Jesus is it, God, Holy Spirit. These are the boys, the one. And we went from there and we talked about the motivation of what motivates Christ to do what Christ does, what motivated him to go to the cross, and what motivates him right now, and what is the motivation of our hearts in following Christ. And we talked about our freedom. We talked about because of what Christ did on the cross, the freedom that we have been given so that we are able to go out and reveal Jesus and that we are a people who are called to action and not just talk. And then we picked up in Act 2, where it got a little harder because we talked about loving Jesus, and, you know, we look at it and we're like, oh, loving Jesus, yeah, I can do that, that's great, yeah, <laughs> Jesus, and we get the warm, fuzzy feeling, we get the butterflies in our stomach, and then Act 2 comes along and we talk about love people. Uh, okay. 
And so that's the place where it becomes uncomfortable for us. And we began to talk about what it means to have compassion. And Pastor Don addressed the talk about what it means to be compassionate. And what does that really mean as followers of Christ, that if we want to reveal Jesus, how are we to be compassionate and how are we to live that out? And then we moved into something a little harder, forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive others? But not just forgiving people outside of the faith, but what does it mean to forgive within the community of Christ? And then we went from there to talk about our work relationships. And that is employers. How are we to handle our work relationships as followers of Jesus? And then as employees, how are we to handle our relationships in the marketplace and in the workplace and what we do? And that really the truth is, work is a gift from God. And to be able to work and to be able to show forth and reveal the light of Christ in the marketplace is a gift from God. To serve those that we disagree with that are maybe our employers, or to serve those that we disagree with that may be our employees, it's a gift from God. And that we are called to show the light and love of Christ. So the past two weeks, we took a brief intermission to focus on what it means to love the least of these. And so today I want to welcome you back to Act 3, where we will begin our journey to talk about what it means to love community. We pick up in the scene of life back in the book of Colossians, where Paul addresses his letter to the church of Colossae. We've heard a lot about Colossae, and we realize that Colossae is this new age philosophical way of living life in this community that it's kind of like a buffet of gods, and whatever you want to choose, you can choose, and if that suits you, fine, then that's cool with us, as long as you're worshiping somebody. And if you disagree with this, or you disagree with that value, that's fine. But we're looking at it in the midst of how do followers of Jesus, in the midst of community, reveal Christ? How do we do that? Well, towards the end of the book of Colossians, where we're at today, is Paul begins to address character or what we call integrity. And Paul begins to unravel in his letter to the church of Colossae, he begins to talk about the character of followers of Christ and the integrity that we are to have when we are in community, whether that means community among each other or community out among those that we are with in the marketplace or in our families or at the grocery stores or on our campuses or even during our school time. But he distinguishes between our actions previously to knowing Jesus and becoming followers of Christ, and then he talks about the fruit that accompanies our actions once we have committed ourselves to following Christ and following his values. And one of those fruits that is to be dominant in a follower of Christ is this, peace. Say that with me, peace. Now, you may not be in the mood, so lose the tood, and let's just do it again. Peace. Feels a little better, doesn't it? Peace is pretty popular. Peace is a pretty popular word today. We see it everywhere, right? We see it on billboards. We see it on protest signs. We hear it out of the the mouths of every one of us. Peace, 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 peace. Everyone wants peace. We all want to achieve peace. We're looking for peace. And it's kind of funny because we talk about peace, we want peace, 
we're willing to sacrifice for peace, but somehow we cannot come into agreement and have peace. We can't distinguish between which kind of peace we need or which kind of peace we want because we all have multiple definitions of what peace means. I want you to hear from a few people of their definitions of what peace is to them. Would you consider your life peaceful right now? No. Not at all. (laughs) Could you say that your life is peaceful? In today's age, I think it's very difficult for anyone to find peace. Would you consider your life peaceful? No. <laughs> job, the job is really stressful, so overall, no, but uh, I try to do what I can to get by. So, Where do you find peace? Where do I find peace? In the trees. How so? Those are living, breathing, eating creatures. Okay. I think they're awesome. Okay. Um, where does peace come from? Well, to some degree, internal, realizing that we have all the same powers and uh, amazing entities that trees and nature has. Tell me three things that worry you. Um, when the world is going to end, what I'm going to be doing in the next few years, who I might marry, I think that worries me. Okay. Where does peace come from? Uh, inside, I think. For me, the ocean, because it's a place that I um, connect with myself, just in the how big it is and how, like, I don't know, permanent. Where does peace come from? Uh, peace comes from being totally happy with yourself and your decisions. Um, you can't totally be happy if you have questions in your mind, and that's where I think total peace comes from. Where does peace come from? Within, in the heart, from love, from friends and family. Members. Basically, that's where I find peace. Would you consider your life peaceful right now? No, um, because there's too much killing and violence and stuff going around. I mean, you can't even, like, like back in the old days, you can leave your door open and, you know, people wouldn't say too much or nothing. Um, um, people kidnapping and stuff, so I'll, um, thank us, peace. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Name three things that worry you. Um, I'd have to say also STDs, uh, flunking out of school, and going to heaven. Going to heaven worries you? It, well, what worries me is not going there. <laughs> so where do you find peace? At home, on my couch, watching sports, baseball, football, that sort of stuff. Where does peace come from? Peace comes from relaxation, friends, family. Would you consider your life peaceful right now? Very. Have a good weekend. Thank you, you too. Where does peace come from? It comes from inside. Where do you think peace comes from? Uh, Within. Where does peace come from? to make your own peace. Where does peace come from? Uh, Inside, I think. Where does peace come from? Within. Where do you think peace comes from? Where do I think? Oh, I know where peace comes from. Okay. (laughs) I know. I mean, um, I think the Bible teaches it best, you know. 
Jesus said something. He said, the peace I give, not like the world gives, you know. I think it's found in the book of John. So the peace that people really need, which I think is the lasting peace, comes from knowing God. Not just God, but having a connection with faith in Christ Jesus. And uh, I think that's what many people miss. I found that, and I think it works. Um, I've lived that life for some years now, and I think it's a true word that Jesus spoke. So that's where peace comes from. So, do you consider your life to be peaceful? Can you say with confidence that you know right where to look for peace, where you'll find it? Are you confident enough in your source that it'll provide you peace? There's so many definitions of peace as to where we find it. We find it in our Eastern meditation. We find peace in twittering and tweeting on Twitter, and we find peace in updating our Facebook status. And for some of us, we find peace in inanimate objects that have no relationship with us. And for some of us, we find peace in our sports, and we find peace in our habits, and we we find peace in all these different places, but it's, the truth is it's just, it's just a peace that it doesn't last because we find ourselves returning to that same source to get that peace that never seems to fully come through. Jesus really understood peace. In fact, God wants to redefine our definition of peace. He wants to redefine it because it's so easy with so many avenues that speak peace and guarantee peace and follow up with facts about peace. It's so easy for our vision to become blurred and to simply add in or construct to what we have already established as foundation. And God wants to redefine our definition of peace. You notice the one gentleman said that where peace comes from? What did he say? Peace comes from God. So if that is the case, if peace comes from God, then as Christ followers, in the midst of an ocean of God's and twisted opinions of philosophy and religious belief, when the boat starts to rock in the midst of the storm, how do we find tranquility? How do we maintain it? And how do we live it out from those who watch us from the shoreline? How do we communicate peace? Well, Jesus told us that we can't be distressed over things because we can't create peace. We don't have the power to create peace because it only comes from him. So if loving community means God redefining our definition of peace, then we must realize that peace is a calm mind in the face of adversity. There will always be tribulation. There will always be anxiety. There will always be stress. There will always be worries. 
But what it is that separates us from those troubles and from those worries is how we respond in the moment. I remember several years ago, I was on staff at another church. I had maintained everything. My integrity, my lifestyle, everything. There was a huge accusation brought against me. And it led to this whole thing where I had to sit down with a bunch of board members and I had to sit down with the accusers. And the whole time, in all honesty, laying it out scripturally, I was in the right. Literally, you could prove it. I was in the right 100%. I have no problem stating that because you're going to hear about the proof in a moment. So my wife and I sat there at this table, this huge, big, long table, and we sat right in the middle of it, and across from us were the accusers. And surrounding the accusers were council members and staff members, and everyone was fidgety, just, you know, moving around, itching, drinking water, you know, like, just, they just didn't feel right. My wife and I sat there the whole time, and we didn't move once. And you say, well, because you were scared. No. They asked us to explain our situation. So we explained to them. We explained to them. We even laid out the word of God and the scriptures before them. Never raised our voice once. Never got upset. We were at peace. But in the middle of my explanation, the opposing party raised their voice, stood up out of their chair, began to flail their fingers at me and accuse me and say all of these things, and I just sat there the whole time. And you say, well, that's because you had a good plan, right? Nope. Just Jesus. Just the peace of Christ all I had. Because I realized in that moment that if my character and my integrity and everything was there, and I was living according to the Word of God, I realized in that moment that I could not produce peace. I realized that I could not argue. I realized that I could not raise a fight. I realized that no matter what I was going to do, it wasn't going to work. Because I had to trust in Jesus, and I had to live in that moment, and I had to allow the peace of God to be present and manifest itself. And it did. Long story short, we were right. We were fine. And the truth came out on the opposing party's side. And I remained at peace. You know, it can become so easy for us to think of the peace of Jesus as a modern-day narcotic or a quick fix. I mean, think about our prayer lives. If I, Jesus, Jesus, if, if, if I can just land this job, I will finally be at peace. Really? Jesus, if I, you know, if I, just, if I just get this raise, I will be at peace. Do you think? Jesus, if you, if you just handle this situation for me, and if you just take care, if you just make it go away, I will finally know what peace is. 
That's like us going to Jesus for a quick fix. Like we're, we need it. We need it, you know? It's like, because we're okay in the moment. We're okay if we don't need that quick fix of peace. Because if you ask us and we're fine and everything is great and, you know, job is good, family's good, everything's right, there's no crisis, there's no drama. We're okay. But in the heat of the moment, our prayer life then turns to being in need of quick fix. Jesus, Jesus, please do this because I just need to experience your peace one more time. And the truth is, as followers of Christ, we shouldn't be returning for the fix. We should be completely delivered of the worry and the anxiety and living in straight peace all the time. That's hard as human beings. Paul tells us in the Word of God that we died with Christ, which means we are spiritual and we are physical, just like Jesus. Physically man, but of the Spirit, which means we have the ability to overcome and live in that place of peace. Look with me at Colossians 3.15. Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. In order for peace to control and direct our minds, we must be in continuous partnership with the Holy Spirit. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, if we want to love community and we want to claim the peace of Jesus— then we need to live moment by moment. And the only way we have the divine ability to live moment by moment is to be in continuous partnership, continuous relationship, continuously in the ebb and the flow of the Holy Spirit. That is the only way that we will live moment by moment. One way you can define your peace, and if you are in relationship with the Holy Spirit, is to ask yourself, questions. For example, week after week, as you've been fantasizing about flipping your boss the bird and walking off the job, are you living in peace? Are you in full partnership with the Holy Spirit? Because that doesn't sound like you're living moment by moment. It sounds more like you're living flesh by flesh. So your spouse verbally bashes you, brings you to a point of anger and bitterness. So you gossip about your spouse in the form of a prayer request because you need prayer. Does that sound like you're living in peace and you're living moment by moment? Maybe you receive a phone call this week and you're at the grocery store. You're in the checkout lane. The argument begins to escalate. There's a good little follower of Jesus. Your temper rises. You get flustered. And you begin to use foul language. Not that we do that. 
And in the heat of the moment, the foul language is flying over the cell phone, and now the cashier hears it, and the lady in front of us hears it, and the people behind us. And are we living in the peace of Christ? Are we living moment by moment? These are logical things to ask. It doesn't have to be spiritual. It's just simple, logical things we can ask ourselves. See, the reason we need the Holy Spirit in partnership is because the Holy Spirit disciples us to live from another dimension. What scares me is that we become so well discipled by the world around us that we have forgotten what it means to be discipled by the Holy Spirit and live in another dimension. That we become so accustomed that we get really good with using excuses. The famous line is, well, we're human. Just like everybody else. We're human. But if we are being discipled by the Holy Spirit, then we are learning to not live so much here as we are living from another dimension, a heavenly dimension. Therefore, where we learn to live from self-control, where we learn to live in a state of peace where we cannot be ruffled in the moment, but that the response that flows out of us is that one of peace, that one of character, that one of Christ. You see, God never executes a logical plan. Some of you just got delivered. See, we get this thought that God owes us an explanation. And we think that God owes us something reasonable. We think that God owes us a plan laid out bit by bit, and that in the end it'll all come out nothing with no problems, everything is fine, and that it will be with ease and no worry. But then again, when God strikes us with an illogical plan or an illogical strategy, we're like, what just happened? Would God really do that? We see a prime example of it in Mark chapter 4, verses 27 through 40. Jesus is walking with his 12, and he says to them, you need partnership with the Holy Spirit so you can live from another dimension. Now I'm going to execute an illogical plan and show you how that's done. And so he says to them, after this great big day of ministry, he says, okay, boys, get in the boat. We're going to go to the other side. Now, you've got to understand, at that time, you're thinking like, oh, yeah, no big deal. Get in the boat and go to the other side of the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee, whichever one it is. It's a body of water. That's not the point. <laughs> he says, get in the boat and go across the water. But see, to them, Jewish history says that's a bad place to go because it's considered to be the abyss. And Jesus has challenged them with this illogical plan and says, get in the boat and let's go to the other side. Well, it just so happens that as they're in the boat, a huge storm begins to take place. It says that the disciples were hurling bu uh, buckets of water out of their boat. Now, here's what's so illogical about the situation is that Jesus is asleep. How many of you have ever flown on a plane? They're not of God. <laughs> you ever experienced turbulence? Okay. Take that in times at times ten. Would you be sleeping at that moment? Can you imagine 
being asleep on a boat that is filling up with water, and you got 12 guys panicking, trying to save their lives, and they look, they're doing one of these. What is he doing? Shut up and take all that out! Come on, quit talking! Well, no, what's he doing over there? He's sleeping. Can't he see what's going on? That's totally illogical. They wake Jesus up. I wonder what it was like. <laughs> what? What's going on? What? Who ate the bread? No, pray over the fish. Multiply it. I don't know. It's possible, people. He was human. <laughs> Jesus was divine. He wouldn't do that. So I imagine he wakes up, and it says that he didn't wake, you know, he wasn't woken up by the storm, so he must have been in a pretty deep sleep. And it says that the disciples woke him up, so I imagine that once he gathered himself, because if you're like me, when I'm in a deep sleep, it takes me a good, you know, two hours to get awake. But once he collected himself, he, I think he kind of assessed the situation. Good one, Pops. It's going according to plan. He stands up in the boat. says he rebukes the wind. And he speaks to the waves. And it stopped. So we come to Jesus and we say, Give me peace. Give me peace, Jesus. And Jesus says, good, get in the boat and go over, cross over. And when the boat starts to rock and the water in our situation begins to fill and we begin to panic and we look back out of frustration and JC's asleep in the stern. And so we wake him up collects himself. We got him right where we want him, Dad. We got him right where we want him. It's having a calm mind in the midst of adversity. Everything must kneel to the peace of Jesus Christ. Repeat after me, everything. 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 I want you to take one minute Think of that situation right now in your mind that you are up against, that you have no peace about. And I want you to declare everything. Say it with me, everything. We need to live from another dimension. We must also understand that peace creates our communal harvest. Communal peace is not acquired quickly or with simplicity because it involves community. We're talking about loving community. And before we can demonstrate the peace of Jesus to other people, we have to be able to demonstrate and live that peace out. But once we start living that peace out, now it becomes a communal effort, which means we have to work at it, which means there's going to be struggles within the community of Christ, which means there are going to be struggles outside the community of faith. There's going to be struggles with our employers. There's going to be struggles with our employees. There is going to be struggles in relationship. 
We have to wrestle through that to create peace and invest into those moments. If we just think that we can simply say, peace, 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 little peace here, little peace there, little peace over here, and then we can just relax. It doesn't work like that. Yes, I just told you, declare that everything must submit to the peace of Christ. But then comes the other part. We have to do our part, which is action. It means forgiving. It means making amends. It means extending love to your enemies. Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Okay, we talked about that. Since as members of one body you were called to peace... And be thankful. It's not just eerie first that's called to one body. It's all of us as followers of Christ that are called to one body to be in peace. How many of you ever experienced frustration? Some of you are lying. What does it feel like? It's frustrating. We experience frustration. A lot of times, the reality is we experience frustration, one, because we're not getting our way, (laughs) two, because of pride, (laughs) or three, it's just because we can't come into an agreement. But when we lay the word of God in between our frustrations, everything must come into agreement. Everything must come into agreement when we put the word of God in the middle of our frustrations. Do you know why we don't solve a lot of our problems? Is because we don't put the Word of God in the middle of it. We want every other solution, but the last one is the Word of God. This past year when I was praying during the 40-day fast, the Lord gave me a revelation. So this is just a little, a little insight in case you want to make an appointment with me. Over the past couple of years, I have seen where as the body of Christ, not just this body, but as a whole, we have declined in the importance of the Word of God. We have resorted to man-made solutions to fix our problems. And so when we have followers of Christ that come into the office and sit down and they say, I'm struggling with my marriage, or I'm having problem with this financial difficulty, or I'm dealing with this habit— The automatic resort is to say, oh, well, do these three things, go home, and how that works out, let me know, and we'll continue to walk through you with that process. And I realize that we're neglecting the word that far surpasses every other form of man-made idea. So now when people come into my office for an appointment, and they look at me and they say, I'm having trouble with my marriage. I'll look at them and say, okay, what do you want to do about it? And they'll explain. They say, well, I got this problem, this problem, X, Y, Z. And I say, great. What does the Word of God tell you to do about that? It's like they have an epiphany all over again. Well, what do you mean? What does the Word of God tell you as a husband regarding your wife? What does the Word of God tell you as a wife regarding your husband? Well, um, well, you know what you need to do? Here's your session. I want you to go home, 
And I want you and your spouse to open up the word. I want you to dig into it, apply it. If it doesn't work after that, come back and see me. I got people who say, I got habitual problems. What does the word of God say about that? But see, we don't want to hear that because that's not a quick solution. We don't like that because we feel that the body of Christ should succumb to the world's ways. It's not what God calls us to do. If you want to experience true peace, you get into the word of God and we begin to apply it. When we become engrossed in frustration, we no longer own the moment. We stop loving community. We stop investing into the lives of people. We stop inviting them into our lives and the things that we are doing, and we no longer possess the needed peace for that situation because we've chosen to neglect the word of God and apply other things around us that will not bring us peace. God's, de- that God's definition of peace means that we maintain peace in the community of faith to be an example for others. Joe, I'm going to ask that you would come up here a minute. I've been taking some time to ask people about their stories. To ask them how they came to know Jesus. How was the influence in their lives? What was the influence that made them come to this decision in their lives to make this choice? This is Joe Straub. Are you on? I'm on. Okay, great. So I I talked to Joe a little bit, and Joe, how long have you been uh, spending time here celebrating with us at Erie First? Uh, It started probably the fall of 2005. Uh, Actually, it was the fall of 2004. Then uh, I entered in some counseling for marriage with uh, Pastor Terry Bryant, and uh, then I got deployed to Iraq. And then since I got back from Iraq in uh, October 2006, I probably haven't missed many Sundays unless the kids were sick, so... Great, great. Well, thank you for your service, first of all. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, Joe, before you started coming here, who was the individual that really began to invest into your life, in essence, that didn't have an agenda? They just wanted to get to know Joe Straub. My, uh, my brother, Bert, hooked me up with a man at work, at General Electric, uh, his name is Silvio Scavella, and I didn't know the man. I probably, he probably worked. We probably worked next to each other for years, and I never saw him, never noticed him. And my uh, brother introduced him to me, and uh, for four or five years, every day of the week, Silvio and I would meet up, and uh, he would just—he'd be with, there with me when I'm crying, and you know, the divorce letters are controlling my life, or. You know, I can't even stand in, uh, stand at the dinner table with my children without crying and such. So he was there. He was there to, to hold me up, as if Brad Stein said the other Wednesday, to hold me up while I, f- I fought. And uh, he, he just revealed, he, he, one of his things was to find joy and find peace. And uh, I'm not quite there yet. I mean, I still tr- struggle with things. But I don't allow, uh, when I open up the mail and there's a letter from an attorney, I don't allow that to rule my life. Mm-hmm. And if I know it's my weekend with the children, I don't open up that mail. You know, that's not, that doesn't define who I am. Uh, no, wait, on Monday the kids go back to school or back to their mom. 
then I open it and then I deal with it. Uh, but as as he has revealed to me that uh, that doesn't, you know, going through this divorce doesn't define who I am. There's a person out there that has been molded through mentors and others that I have uh, a story to share. You know, I have a strong sense of uh, a love of children, you know, through upward soccer and and uh, I just finished the membership class here so I can become more involved in uh, the events that they offer here. I'm here every Wednesday with my children and I have a strong uh, calling to be with other men to help them out, uh, to help them through the struggles that we're all facing. So really at that point when Silvio started to invest into your life and began just to spend time with you, just to meet Joe Straub, to become a friend of Joe, at what point did you begin to see a change in your own life that you said, you know what, I've got to get involved in a community of faith? As, uh, there's, it's been a long journey. It's been so many different points I can look back and laugh now, and I, I don't think I'd change one thing that's happened to me through the whole period. But like uh, when Fireproof the movie was out or the 40-day love dare, I'd grab that thing like, oh, this is the thing that's going to save me. And I'd do that, and I'm like, no results, what's happening? And uh, it wasn't about me controlling the situation. There's so many times I would, Sylvia would say, you know, Joe, he'd yell at me and say, you know, you, you just said last week you were going to give this over to the Lord, yet here you are meddling in your own affairs trying to take over that again. And it, it, I still struggle with stuff like that at, at times, but... Uh, you know, I think uh, a person needs a mentor of the same gender to help him or her through uh, those times. And uh, you know, I just, I'm thankful that someone cared enough to give his time to me. And uh, I don't know where I would be right now. You know, another, some of these other men here from GE, you know, Mark, Tom, you know, there's a f small clique of us where if I know I have a problem or they have a problem. We search each other out, and we're there for each other. Awesome. Thank you. So this whole thing of a communal harvest, we see that one man took time without an agenda. I'm afraid that as followers of Jesus, we become very agenda-oriented. We can't talk to somebody who doesn't know Jesus unless we have the agenda of immediately getting them to repent and ask for forgiveness and then get saved. And then our job is done. But if we look at the Word of God, we can see the pattern that Jesus demonstrated over and over was is that he spent time with these people. He invested into their lives. I think of Zacchaeus when he looked at Zach and said, Zach, get down out of the tree. Let's just go have lunch today. And there was something that took place that as Jesus invested into Zacchaeus, there was something that took place. There was this transformation, and there was a harvest that came out of that. As a community of faith, if we want to see a communal harvest within the body of Christ as a whole, we need to begin to invest into the lives of men and women and not have an agenda in the back of our minds, but be available to the Holy Spirit that when the Holy Spirit speaks, we are obedient to that, and we begin to see a harvest that comes out in their hearts and their minds. Finally, 
thankfulness. Thankfulness always precedes peace. The logical way to view our circumstances a lot of times for followers of Jesus is this. We pray about it. We expect God to give us an answer. Once we get the answer, our faith increases. And once our faith increases, then the peace comes. But that doesn't work with God. That doesn't ever work with God. We try to make it work, but it doesn't happen that way. Look at Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Then look at what Paul says. And be thankful. It wasn't like Paul's like, well, gee, how should I end this letter? Hmm. Oh, be thankful, everyone. Oh, that was a job well done. <laughs> Let's send it in the mail. There was a reason why he said to the body of Christ in the church of Colossae to be thankful. Paul tells us that our thankfulness is the key ingredient to releasing the peace of Christ. See, we've been taught to enter everything with prayer. Yes and no. When was the last time that we enter in with thankfulness? See, a lot of times when crisis arrives in our life, or frustration begins to rise, the first thing that we are trained to do is go pray about it. Right? What do we say to people in the hallways? Brother, my shoulder is really killing me. I'm just going to ask you, you know what, brother, go pray about it. Hey, I just want to let you know right now that I have one of my siblings who's struggling with a drug addiction. Go pray about it. Hey, I have this uh, issue that I'm dealing with. I have this addiction to alcohol. Go pray about it. That's like our automatic response. It's like default mode. Once you become a follower of Jesus, let us install this default mode where you just pray about it. Hi, how you doing today? Did you pray about it? Hi, I'm pray about it. Now understand, prayer is key. Prayer is a hallmark of any follower of Christ. It is an integral avenue of communication for anyone who follows Christ. But the scriptures are plastered with thankfulness. We see it all throughout the Word of God. What if we change our default setting to pray about it to how can I thank God about this? Interesting, you say. What if, in the moment where crisis arrives, or frustration begins to rise, that we stop thinking about ourselves, and we start to thank the Lord? Now, sometimes when we say thankfulness, our mind goes blank. Because it's not our lifestyle. We know how to complain to Jesus, and we know how to pray, we know how to worship through song. But then there's that thankfulness thing. Can anybody do a teaching on that so I can know what that means? We are way too educated. We have so much information today that revelation is not penetrating our hearts and transformation isn't happening. We have become so accustomed that we have more followers of Christ living off information than living from revelation. Now let me explain this. Information does not take us to the heart of God where transformation happens. 
Revelation and understanding takes us to the heart of God, and when we arrive there, transformation happens. We have so much knowledge in our brains that we don't know how to apply it. We have so much in our brains, we don't even know where to begin. We have to make ourselves a flow chart during the week of how to spend our time with Jesus. We need to return back to Revelation. And when we start to adjust our lives to entering in with thankfulness in all situations, that is when revelation flows and transformation begins to happen in our hearts. And that is when everyone around us that we are investing into looks and says, I want what you have. That's when those that we are with on the floor at GE, as, as, as Joe was saying, or those that are at Wegmans, or those who are in Kmart, or whether we're over at Gabe's, it doesn't matter. That's when people look and say, oh man, you have something that I want. That's the peace that I'm talking about. Instead of this, when we sit down and we say, Jesus, you know the crisis. Oh Lord, I don't know how my heart's going to handle it. What if we began to say, wow, God, this is so amazing. I never imagined that my dad would ever have to go through a heart transplant. Wow. This is going to be exciting. Not because he has to go through a heart transplant, but how is this going to mess our family up for God? Wow, I mean, God, I know the doctor said he only has six months to live, but I'm just really excited because you're going to transform him. You're going to transform my mom. You're going to transform me. You're going to transform our family and the people that he's going to interact with. This is going to be way beyond us. Thank you. Thank you for allowing us to live through this to experience this, and to see this. It's not a logical plan, is it? Well over nine years ago, my father had passed. But way prior to that, my father was <clears throat> one of the first ones in the area of heart transplants. One day his uh, left cavity just gave out. The doctors had absolutely no reason for it. It just gave out. It was done. Turned our whole world upside down. We really didn't know what to do. I mean, who, who in the world ever has a heart transplant? You know, we just never imagined that. Very rare did we know of anyone who had a heart transplant. It was very slim. And so when we talked to them, they said, you need a heart transplant. And I remember my parents coming home to me and saying, hey, Jason, here's the deal. Dad needs a heart transplant. Well, what does that mean? That means they're going to remove his current heart and they're going to put a new one in. But here's the catch. They're saying he probably only has about six months to live. Now, logically, we think that it's sick and twisted to begin to thank God for things like that to happen in our lives. Because that's the way we've been programmed. We haven't been programmed according to the Word. The Word tells us to enter with thanksgiving. Enter with thanksgiving. Don't enter with frustration and drama and crisis and woe is me. 
The doctor said my father had six months to live after his heart transplant. He lived for 15 years. Let me tell you what. People around us need to hear less of our whining and more of our thankfulness. We need to give them something that is tangible, that surpasses all those moments of peace that we always have to run back to because they're never fulfilling. See, prayer is the process necessary to find out what God wants. Then ask him for help to do it. Prayer is the process necessary to find out what God wants then ask him to help to do it. Prayer. We've been programmed that prayer is the give me, give me, give me with my little grocery list of needs. Prayer is going to God and asking him what he wants for the moment and the time and the situation. And then asking him and saying, Give us the perseverance. Give us the stamina to live it out and to do it. And the way it starts is with giving thankfulness. Would you please stand with me? I leave you with this. You've been great at giving me your attention this whole time, so I'm asking for two more minutes before you grab your keys and your coat and your purse and your wallet, whatever it is. Just give me two minutes. We saw the effects in the Old Testament with Israel because they were not a people of thankfulness. What would have took them a matter of days to get from Egypt to the Promised Land The word tells us it took them 40 years because of their complaining. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about communal harvest. I don't want to wait 40 years. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about experiencing the peace of Christ and that when the world steps back and looks at the body of Christ as a whole and says, oh my gosh, Why are they so at peace? And they're thanking their God in the midst of all of this. I'm pretty excited about that. But I don't want to wait 40 years. Let's start now. Let's start now to pursue the peace of Christ. Let's start now to enter in with thankfulness so that as we invest into the lives of the community, they see it. And the only time they question it is because they want it. Father God, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for a new level in our lifestyles of following Christ. Father, we ask that you return us to the basics. Return us to the word, Lord. Return us to where we are testing what is being said. And we are not just receiving because somebody has REV in front of their name, Lord. We ask, God, that you return us to the heart of the word. 
We ask, Lord, that you begin to rend our hearts to desire true peace. That we begin to enter with thankfulness. Father, we ask that as we go through this time of talking about how we love community, we pray, God, that it will not be just words that accompany our lip movements, but, Father, it will be action that accompany where we put our feet every day. I pray, God, that you will increase the voice of the Lord in each believer's life. I ask, God, that a spirit of discernment will grow in each one of us. And most of all, Lord, I ask for an intense revelation, an intense understanding of obedience will rest upon us. God, we love you. And we are so thankful for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you are going to do. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Have a good day.